good songs tonight. Uh, tonight, we're, I mentioned earlier that we're going to do things a little different, even for the message portion. Uh, I want to do something that may upset the typical order of how services go. This may be a little unorthodox, but a little change of pace every once in a while can be good. Uh, tonight, I'd like to speak to you on why believers sing. Why we sing. But you can't just listen to me preach to you about why we sing without singing about it. Now, we've already done a considerable amount of singing. But throughout the entire service and throughout even the message portion, we are going to sing as well. So buckle up because we're going to have some fun tonight. Uh, when you read throughout the Bible, you will inevitably come across songs of praise that are offered up to God for any number of reasons, uh, for who God is, things God has done, what he has promised to do. For example, when God supernaturally delivered the children of Israel through the Red Sea, swallowed up Pharaoh and his host by bringing the seas back together, the children of Israel sang a hymn of praise to God in Exodus chapter 15. And when you look at the book of Psalms, the entire book of Psalms is a, basically a collection of songs written by David and many others, which became the Jewish hymn book for many of their worship services. All throughout the Old Testament, we read about songs of praise, we read about songs of deliverance that are offered up to God, and even when we get to the New Testament, we see that the same theme continues. During Christmas time, we read about Mary's song of praise, which is recorded for us in Luke chapter 1, as she praises God for what he is going to do through her as God has chosen her and had her be the one through whom the Messiah would be born. Uh, we read about in the same chapter, Luke chapter 1, the praise of Zacharias as well, who praises God for visiting his people and redeeming his people and being true and faithful to all of his promises. In Luke chapter 2, we have a multitude of the heavenly host, the Bible says, praising God and saying. Now, you can argue with me and say, well, it doesn't say that they actually sang. You know what? I think they did. So you all can be wrong and believe what you want to. No, I'm not saying the Bible's wrong. But I do believe that there was, there was praise, there was worship in the angels as they delivered this most glorious news to the shepherds about the birth of the Savior. And this pattern of praise continued all throughout church history as well. Many of the early reformers realized just how vital music can be in the proclamation of the gospel. One of the greatest reformers, Martin Luther, was instrumental in restoring singing into services. He even wrote a number of hymns which we're still singing today, like, for instance, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. History tells us about John and Charles Wesley, who not only began a massive revival in England, but are also well-known for many wonderful hymns that they wrote, and some of which are still in our hymn books today. Much of the effectiveness of the evangelistic crusades of men like D.L. Moody was due to the powerful singing of a man by the name of Ira Sankey. As far back as we can look, Christianity has always been a singing faith. Believers have been offering praise and worship to God through song. And when we break it down, we find that there are really four main reasons, and there's probably more than this, but I'm going to just mentioning four main reasons why we sing. We sing because of our salvation. We, we sing because of God's word. We sing because we have the Holy Spirit, and we sing because of sacrifice. And we're going to touch on these four main reasons here this evening and sing a song that ties in each of these main points. But I want you to turn with me to Psalm 66. 
Psalm 66 as we begin this evening. There is a phrase at the beginning of Psalm 66 which appears a handful of times in the Bible, and I think it properly describes what our attitude should be when we come before God. In Psalm 66, in verse number 1, I'll read the first four verses, but in verse number one, we see this phrase. It says, make a joyful noise unto God. Make a joyful noise unto God. There are some of us that have beautiful singing voices, and there are some of us that are just making joyful noises. Uh, And you may be sitting next to someone that is making a joyful noise, uh, and it may not be someone that is going to stand in front of a congregation or a massive audience and sing a solo, but they're making a joyful noise unto God. And that phrase appears numerous times throughout the Bible. Notice what it says, reading down through verse number four here in Psalm 66. Make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. Sing forth the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say unto God, how terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. All the earth shall worship thee and shall sing unto thee. They shall sing to thy name. There are so many things that we can make mention of here, and I just wanted to tie this in because often we get discouraged when we pray. I know some people that don't sing out too much because they know they don't have the best voice. My wife tells me that I just know how to sing loud. Um, I don't know how to take that, but... Either way, whether you're singing loud, that joyful noise that we're called to proclaim to God isn't, isn't intended to be in tune always. Isn't inte- I, I can't read music. So there are some songs that you sang today, uh, that we sang today, that I had to, I'm looking at them, and I, I know this song, I can't remember how it goes, and then the music started playing, and it's like, oh, that's right, it all came back. But I look at the sheet music, and it might as well be a foreign language to me. I can read the words. Don't ask me what the notes are. I I know when the note is higher up, you're singing up higher, and when it's down low, you're singing lower, but that's about the extent of it. So some of us can can make a joyful noise, and that joyful noise sounds wonderful. Some of us can make a joyful noise, and we're sending everyone running. Uh, But however it is, praise the Lord for the opportunity to do that, and if we're doing it for the right reasons, that's what is all important here. And that's what he's calling us to do. We're called here to make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands. He says, sing forth the honor of his name and make his praise glorious. Why do we sing? In Psalm 40, David described how the Lord is his help, how the Lord is his deliverer, and he praises God for his salvation. I want you to look just at the first three verses here in Psalm 40. We're going to bounce around just a, a little bit here. But... Verses 1 through 3 here in Psalm 40. I want you to pay attention to what he says here. This is a psalm of David, and he's praising God for his deliverance. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear, and shall trust in the Lord. This psalm paints such a clear picture of the lost soul. So many unsaved people feel safe in their present state, not realizing realizing that they're actually in the horrible pit that is called sin. And what makes matters worse is that the more secure that unbelievers feel in in that sin, they fall into what the psalmist describes here, the 
deep, miry clay until they're one day going to be swallowed up in judgment. And what David describes is that the Lord was standing by that horrible pit, offering help to get him out of the miry clay that he himself, David, had gotten himself into. But David had to cry out for help to get it. Think of how perfectly this picture, this picture of salvation. When a person believes on Jesus Christ as their Savior, the Lord picks them up out of the pit. He picks them up out of the miry clay that they were in, and he sets their feet, as he says there in verse number two, upon a rock. But not just a rock, he sets their feet upon the rock, Jesus Christ. Their feet are placed firmly on the ground that is no longer slippery, on ground that is no longer sinking, and the path of their life is hereby guided by God to ensure success. Instead of continual cries of desperation, as the psalm starts with, the believer now, as it says in verse number three, has a new song in his mouth, one that is praise to the one who has saved him and saved him eternally. Now, throughout the Bible, you will find that salvation is always accompanied with joy. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus teaches three parables, three parables to illustrate that, that, uh, the joy that people should have when sinners are saved, the response that people should have when sinners are saved. Uh, we, we read about one shepherd, a shepherd who has 100 sheep, loses one, and he goes out into the wilderness, searches far and wide, and finds that lost sheep. And what does the Bible say he does when he finds it? The Bible says he throws the animal over his shoulder and rejoices. But he doesn't just rejoice. He continues, to go, he continues rejoicing as he goes home and he calls his friends and he calls his neighbors all together so that everyone can rejoice with him that the one lost sheep has been found. When the woman who has 10 pieces of silver loses the one somewhere in her home, she searches far and wide, every nook, every cranny in her house until she finds it. And when she finds it, what does she do? The Bible says she rejoices. She rejoices with her friends and with her neighbors. When the prodigal son returned home after spending all of his inheritance on riotous living, this Bible says, what does the father do? He rejoices, calls everyone together, throws this big feast celebrating the fact that his son has returned. What is equally exciting is that twice in that context, Jesus says that not only are the people rejoicing, but who else is rejoicing along with them? The angels in heaven, it says. Angels are rejoicing as well over the individual that is saved. Now, each of these parables deal with what our response should be for sinners that are saved. Important to note, neither of these parables teach us how to get saved. When you start teaching these parables as a salvation story, the message begins to fall apart. The shepherd had a hundred sheep, lost one, found it, brought it home. The message isn't about salvation at all. It is literally only about how we, how we respond when an individual is saved. The woman had 10 pieces of silver, lost one, finds it. A father has two sons, one leaves and then eventually returns. No one is a child of God, loses his salvation and then regains it. The message has nothing to do about gaining salvation. It has everything to do about what the response should be when a person is saved. So just keep that in the back of your minds. None of these parables are speaking about salvation. Rather, what our response should be when an individual is saved. And the lesson that we learn is that everyone who is saved has every reason to joyfully sing. We're no longer enslaved to sin. 
When God saves us, the Lord has established our goings and made us secure in him. And again, in verse number two, it says, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He set us on the rock of Jesus. So let's go ahead and sing the first and third verses of hymn number 215, The Solid Rock. Hymn number 215, the first and third verses. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Verse 3. Sorry. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So we sing, first of all, because of our salvation, but we also sing, secondly, because of God's word. Now listen to what we read in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3, 15 through 17. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. When the word of Christ is dwelling in you, you will have a joyful song to sing. Through reading and understanding the word of God, we discover the God of the word. The more we learn about God, the more we desire to worship and to praise him. The tricky part is when we make singing more important than the Bible. Many people today will form their theology from the songs they listen to more than the actual word of God. There are a lot of good songs that are out there. There are a lot of good Christian songs that have been written, but there are also many songs that only pass as Christian because they're played on a certain radio station. Many of the songs we have in our hymnal are taken directly from God's Word. Now, the Word of God has been made into song, and it has touched countless lives and will continue to do that when the message in song agrees with the Word of God. Many Christian artists today claim to be producing godly music, but if it's not based in Scripture, if the message isn't supported by the Word of God, it's not teaching people biblical truth, but actually deceiving. A musician has no more right to sing a lie than a preacher does to preach a lie. 
So let's continue by singing the first verse, first and fifth verse of hymn number 111, How Firm a Foundation, hymn number 111, verses 1 and 5. Foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can we say than to you he has said to you who to Jesus have fled. Verse 5. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. We sing because of our salvation. We sing because of God's word. And third, we sing because of the Holy Spirit. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 18 and 19, it says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. The same idea is expressed in Colossians 3, 15 through 17, which I just read to you a few moments ago. But both of these passages build off of each other because the Word of God is what the Spirit of God uses to bring power, to bring victory, to bring success in our lives. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, then we will be led by the Word of God. And those who are filled with the Spirit of God have a joy within them that cannot be contained. It is a joy that leads them to sing. It is a joy that leads them to praise God. And, and based on that fact, our singing doesn't depend upon what our circumstances look like. As we mentioned this morning, happiness and joy are two completely different things. Happiness is contingent upon your present circumstances, where joy is contingent upon your eternal position in Christ. Since your present circumstance could change from moment to moment, pleasant to unpleasant, because even in, the, in or, uh, your happiness can therefore be incredibly unpredictable. Joy, though, joy for the believer can be constant, because regardless of what you're going through, when, even when, the life, when life gets the worst, we're still eternally secure in Christ, and nothing can change that. And for this reason, we always have a reason to praise God and to worship Him in song. One morning, I had left the room before... Um, Oh, I've probably shared this before. I, in college, in my college days, I had left my room before my roommate woke up. And he always, he had a song that he would sing every single morning. And I left my room and I came back after a first hour class that I had. And down in Florida, where I was at Bible college, it would just rain sometimes out of nowhere. Storms would come up out of nowhere. It'd be perfectly sunny, perfectly, I don't, clear as, as day. And then out of nowhere, there'd be no clouds in the sky and rain would start pouring down. And I remember coming back from my first hour class just drenched, completely soaking, head to toe, and I was just miserable. My books were just 
I was wringing out my Bible because water had just waterlogged all my books. And I remember coming into my room and I just was kind of upset. And I looked to my room and I said, John, all right, what's the song this morning? And he looked at me and he stopped for a moment and then he started singing, There Shall Be Showers of Blessing. And I was... I was not too happy at that moment. But I could still have joy even though I was unhappy. And that is why in Ephesians 5.18, the comparison that we see that is made between, it says, the one who's drunk and the one who's spirit-filled. A drunk person may start singing, but he's only singing because he's drunk. He's not singing because he has joy. He's lost control of himself, and he's just singing belligerently. The spirit-filled believer sings because he's being led by the Holy Spirit, and he's under Holy Spirit control. There's a huge difference. When the Holy Spirit fills your heart with joy and fills your mind with the Word of God, you cannot help but express your joy for God in song. So let's sing together hymn number 78, Sweet, Sweet Spirit. Hymn number 78. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place, and I know that it's the spirit of the Lord. There are sweet expressions on each face, and I know of the All right, so there are many reasons why we as believers will sing. But the last reason I'm going to point out is that, is that of the sacrifice. And Christ's sacrifice for sure, but sacrifice also in general. Christ offered himself on the cross in our place. And the reason he did this is because this was the pattern established by God, how to deal with sin. All throughout the Bible, we read about important sacrifices being made to God. The entire book of Leviticus seems to be established for describing what those sacrifices should look like. And all of them pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice that would be made in Jesus Christ. But what we find is that when people were willing to demonstrate this wholehearted devotion to God in self-sacrifice... Their sacrifice led to blessing and joy. We read about an account between Abraham, with Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22, where God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And we, we know that God intervened at the last second, provided a substitute for Isaac, and what followed was great joy. In fact, in the New Testament, in John chapter 8 and in verse number 56, when Jesus was contending with the Pharisees in the temple, he told them, 
Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham, he says, rejoiced to see his day, and he saw it the day that he was upon the mountain, prepared to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. God intervened. God stopped the knife and provided a substitute for Abraham. And even then, there was a picture of the ultimate substitute that Jesus Christ would be for the sins of all the, of all the world. And Abraham rejoiced and was glad, we're told. In the New Testament, we read about Mary. Mary demonstrating self-sacrifice. She was rejoicing after the angel Gabriel told her that she had been chosen by God to be the one to bear the Messiah. Mary, Mary willingly offered herself to be used by God, and she declared this in, in Luke chapter 1, and verses 46 and 47. She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. This passage is often referred to as Mary's song of praise. She was offering herself to God as a living sacrifice to be used for his glory, to be used for his purposes. At times it's difficult to see any good come out of a difficult situation. But our reason for praising God should never be because of the blessing that we're expecting to receive or something that we're expecting to get out of it. But rather that we've been given the opportunity to be a living sacrifice for God, to be used for his honor and for his glory. And when this is our attitude, we can rejoice and we can sing in any circumstance. In Acts chapter 16, and in verse number 25, we read about Paul and Silas in prison. They had been beaten, they had been abused, they had been thrown into prison all unjustly. And even though they believed that death was probably unavoidable at this point, the Bible tells us that they continued to sing throughout the night as they were overjoyed at the opportunity to be living sacrifices for the Lord. Their reason for living was not to please themselves, but to serve the Lord with all their heart. And listen to what Acts 16, 25 says. It says, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Sacrifice has a way of bringing joy. Jesus declared in Matthew 10, 39, he says, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. When we try to save ourselves and do things for ourselves, we're going to fail every time. However, when we lose our life for the sake of the Lord, we're told we will always have joy. God is glorified when we offer ourselves over to him to be a living sacrifice for him, to be used for his purpose. God is glorified when we do that. And in return, God gives us a new song in our hearts, as David declared there in Psalm 40, verse number 3. A new song, one that brings eternal joy, one that brings eternal praise. The only Christian that doesn't have a song to sing is the one that has backslidden. In Psalm 137, the Babylonians asked the Jews to sing one of the songs of Zion, the Bible says. And the Jews responded in verse 4 of Psalm 137 by saying, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? You see, the Jews were in Babylon because they had forsaken God and they had been punished because they were living for themselves and living disobediently. They were captives in a strange land, in the land of Babylon, and the joy they once had was now forgotten. It was their sin, it was their disobedience that led to their captivity, and now they'd allowed their circumstances to rob them of the joy that they once had when they were walking in obedience to God. And so when they're asked to sing a song, they're asked to give the gospel, basically. They say, what song can we sing in a strange land? What is there to sing? 
There's no reason and no cause for joy is basically what they're saying. As long as Christians are not walking in fellowship and obedience with Christ, they should expect to have no joy in their life. It's not that they can't have ever, they can't have joy ever, but as long as they're out of fellowship with God, they will only know misery and pain. The believers that have joy are the ones that are walking in obedience to the Lord, the ones that are enjoying his daily blessings. If you know the Lord and you've come to Jesus in faith, if you're continually dwelling in the word of God, if your heart is filled with the Holy Spirit and you're following the Holy Spirit's leading, if you've yielded yourself to be a living sacrifice for the Lord, then you'll have a song of joy that you can sing to the Lord. The greatest sacrifice we've ever seen is Jesus Christ. And it is only because of him that we have life and the opportunity to eternally sing. So as we close out our time tonight, let's sing together the first and the third verse of hymn number 57, And Can It Be? Hymn number 57. Let's stand as we sing tonight, And Can It Be? Hymn number 57, the first and the third verses. Can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me? Jeremy, would you close us out in prayer tonight?